0: Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. This show is brought to you by Red Rabbit Insurance. As a real estate investor, I love working with companies and people who truly understand investing. If you're a real estate investor, I highly suggest talking to Ryan at Red Rabbit Insurance. Red Rabbit specializes in working with investors of all sizes, both for their personal residence, auto, and investment properties. Red Rabbit recently saved one of our investors $5,000 a year by switching to the exact same coverage. That's a down payment on a new rental. I personally saved 15% by switching to Red Rabbit, which is pretty significant. And Red Rabbit Insurance makes it super easy to get a quote. All you need is the address, your full name, and your date of birth. No annoying questionnaires to fill out, and Red Rabbit gets you a quote in less than a day. Email ryan at redrabbitinsurance.com or go to the website redrabbitinsurance.com or call 1-800-560-3015. That's redrabbitinsurance.com. Call today to save some money and get better insurance rates for your investments. Hey guys, this is Chad Gallagher, your host of the Real Estate Hackers podcast. In this podcast, we're going to interview Eric Brewer of Sierra Property Group. This guy is an absolute stud. You're going to hear about how he took lessons from the car sales business and parlayed that into a massive real estate empire. You must listen. If you're trying to scale in real estate, this is a absolute gem of an interview. We're going to cover the systems he uses, how he managed to scale to doing over 200 deals a year. You heard that right. 200 deals a year in real estate across seven territories. Let's get to it. Eric Brewer. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Podcast. Got uh, Eric Brewer here today, CEO of Sierra Property Group. Yes. Uh, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, so let's see. I want to start with, uh, why don't you take it back to how you got started in real estate? Okay. Okay.
1: Um. Luckily, my memory still goes back that far. It's been uh, 14 years now. But um, I had transitioned uh, out of the car business. I was in the car business for about eight years. And um, the previous owner of the dealership that I worked at had sold the dealership and was looking to get into something new and approached me and came across this concept of buying and selling real estate. So we sat down and talked, had a few lunches together, and decided that we would be a good fit um needed to do a little bit of education and you know our due diligence to to learn what we felt we needed to get started in real estate did that over the course of about 90 days Um, had enough confidence to go out and start buying homes and bought uh in our first full year bought 70 deals
0: So let me me just pause you there so you're a successful car dealer yes you decide, hey, real estate looks interesting. Year one, bought and sold with another partner, 70 properties. 70
1: properties. Buy, renovate, sell, few wholesale deals in there, but the majority, so this was back in 2005, super difficult to find deals. I mean, we were spending about $15,000 a month in TV and billboards. Um, most of our acquisitions came you know, direct from seller, bought a few off the MLS, but Back in two thousand five, it was uber competitive. Tough to buy stuff on the you know the MLS and on markets and auctions, um, and uh, you know there was barely any equity in those deals. So we had to renovate to create equity um, and then resell in the open market. So out of those seventy deals that we did, sixty of them were probably fix and flips.
0: I mean, let's just uh, mic drop a moment here for me. I mean, uh, so I mean my own first year in real estate, we bought four properties. Okay. And I was really proud of myself. Yeah. I mean, I, was, uh, I had never bought properties before. I can't even get my head around doing 70 in year one.
1: Yeah, and it was kind of, so the cool part about, or I would say what drove us to make a change from the car business was um, as margins started to reduce in the car business, right? Like with um, the developments of the internet and these buying services, Um, And just the access to information that people had when it came to buying a new car, because it was a new car dealer, Toyota dealership, um, your average profit margin started to shrink. So you used to be able to sell 200 cars to make good money, now you need to sell 400 cars. So when you think about selling 70 homes for two car guys that were coming out of a 400 car a month store, it just didn't seem like a lot. Um, but the reason we decided to make the transition was like listen i'm going to spend three and a half hours with a customer to develop a relationship to hope that they buy a car and possibly make a thousand dollars right and then you do that 400 times and and that's what it takes to be profitable Um, our point and our thinking was is that listen our skill set seems to be you know a a very good fit and a lot of the lessons and you know experience that we have is applicable to be able to transfer from the car business right because particularly when used cars you buy low sell high right real estate if you're if you're doing it right you're doing it the same way. You buy and make your money um, when you purchase it, right? Mm. Um, And cars go through a reconditioning process. You buy a used car at the auction, you bring it back to the dealership, you inspect it, you detail it, and you put it out on the lot for $4,000 more than you paid for it. So we're saying, okay, it's same gig, different product, right? Buy homes, recondition them, sell them. Um, So when we did 70 at the time, like when I think back on it now, it was like, wow, that was a lot to do our first full year, but at the time, they were actually small numbers for us in, in comparison to what we were used to doing.
0: That's amazing. Um, I'm just wow. I mean, I mean, we're getting into all much other stuff, but I—that I mean, is just a big number. Yeah, it
1: one. was. Um, it, it happened pretty fast too. I mean, it was.
0: Now, were there some losses in that group? Yeah, like some uh, learning losses. Curve? Like
1: I would say, you know, if we anticipated making 15 and ended up making four, wasn't necessarily per se a loss. Um, we had one big deal. Got a little gutsy. Um, bought a $200,000 house that needed what we thought was a $100,000 ra- renovation that would sell for five. Um, turns out it was a $200,000 renovation sold for four. <laughs> so that was a, a loss. I mean, you know, we owned that property for a year and a half. The renovation just you know, was well beyond our experience level. Um, definitely bit off more than we can chew with that one particular deal um, and lost upwards of, I think when it was all said and done, um, about $80,000 on that deal. Um, fortunately, we were at that point in our second year, um, in which we had done over 100 transactions. So we had enough positives and, and, right. and, and yeah. profit uh, coming in on those other transactions to offset it. But yeah, that was a that was a big loss.
0: What would you say um, is the best thing you took from? I, I, I've never interviewed someone before who had a background in the car business and now into real estate. What would you say is that the, the best lesson you learned from? being a car dealer that parlayed well into real estate?
1: Process.
0: Um, so I, one that, of the that, things... I thought you were gonna say sales for sure.
1: Nah, I mean, sales is a process, right? Like the people that do sales at a high level are able to have a training process to onboard new salespeople. Um, they have accountability processes in place that from your, from your best salesperson to your worst salesperson should be a very minimal gap. And if you go to some car dealerships, you, know, you, you run the likelihood of running into a superstar or somebody that's there and they're passing time, not sure it's the right career for them, don't know anything about the product that they're selling, virtually have no sales ability, um, but you know, the car business has always kind of been a place that always had open doors. And if you were, had a pulse, could pass a drug test and didn't have you know, um, an extensive criminal background, you can get into the car business. One of the things that we did is we had a hiring process. A training process, an onboarding process, daily accountability meetings with each of our salespeople um, to figure out what did, what did you do yesterday and what were the results and what are you planning to do today and what's the anticipated outcome, and um, that's where we really started to see our ability to be able to scale and grow that dealership from 100 cars a month to 200, and then instantly it was like overnight went to 400, and then as we opened up some satellite used car dealerships, we basically just applied that same. Um, approach the same training platforms, the yep. same recruiting platforms, and sales processes in each of those stores to where we eventually went over a thousand cars a month. Um, again, um, you know, a thousand cars a month is a lot. Back then, I was working 85 hours a week, and the, the downside to being in the car business is you physically need to be there, at least in my position as the general manager or general sales manager, um, you actually need to be on site. Um, versus real estate where, you know, a lot of what we do today is by way of email. And, you know, I don't, I don't physically have to be right. on site or at the property to get things done. Um, but short answer would be process um, for everything, right? We had a service process and way that service customers are handled, um, a delivery process. So after you'd sold the car, um, for anybody that's bought more than one car, you probably would admit that there's some differences and some inconsistencies between the way that the car is delivered to you. Like, um, you know, I've been handed the keys to a brand new car and got in and didn't know how to use anything. Um, And there's other dealerships that take another 45 minutes to an hour if you're willing to wait and they walk you through all of the operations of the car. It's a process. Um, So we didn't leave it the chance that the individual salespeople would develop their own process. We had a process. We made sure it was the best constantly reviewed it and tweaked it if need be and then held everybody accountable to that process. That's so.
0: awesome. Um, let's segue that into the your real estate business. I know from working with you, I have just been blown away by your process. Um, uh, I think of you, as, as I've got to know you, as a little more that Wheeler and Dealer persona. Is that a pair? Yes. Is that okay to you, that say would be, that? Yes,
1: you would be the first person. Okay. Yes.
0: Um, and yet your company is not, I would never say anyone, Sierra Property Group is a wheeler and dealer company. It is from top to bottom. Every, everyone I've met, there's process inside and out, mm-hmm. um, accountability inside and out. Talk to me through, I think I mean, I mean. think a lot of people get into real estate because they're good at sales, yes. because they like working on, on properties. And to be frank, I think a lot of them are not experts in process. Correct. Um, and I guess you'd probably fall in that category. Absolutely. How did you make that jump? How'd you go from, uh, I don't know, it not being your strong suit and yet you now have a company that it is their strong suit?
1: That's a really good question. and and So let me start with when I realized that I needed more and better process. As a salesperson, I was great at acquiring properties, right? Like I could um, convert leads, generate leads. Um, I had a good marketing mind, like I knew how to uh, market to generate leads. And then once I got a lead, I could convert them to a sale. I could buy their property, buy it at a discount. Um, and then the in between part, which we won't talk about right now, which is the renovation part, right? Had to happen, right? But once it came out the other side, I could sell it. So once I had a renovated property and it was, you know, renovated, priced right, ready to go, staged, cleaned, all that good stuff, I'd sell it no problem. It was the in between part of the renovation that really almost made me not want to be in the business. I loved buying them. I loved selling them. But managing renovations, um, dealing with, on any given job, five to seven subcontractors, constantly missing deadlines. Um, you know, unexplained material usage, like, hey, we, we, we planned for 15 gallons of exterior paint, I've already delivered 15 here, why are you requesting another 10? It's either waste or theft, right? Um, or just bad management. Like sometimes contractors um, will leave the lid off of a bucket of paint because they didn't pay for it and they come back the next day and it's ruined. Um, So that whole process drove me crazy. Like the operation aspect of our business drove me absolutely nuts. Um, I knew what needed to be done. I knew there needed to be process and accountability. It just wasn't gonna be me. Like that was not my strong suit being in operation. So we hired a project manager. Um, hired a project manager that you know was detail-oriented was accustomed to meeting deadlines and had problem-solving ability where a change order or something popped up on a job site they could coach the contractor through it and make a decision so the first time that we recognized that we needed to develop process outside of sales um, was once we had grew to in our third year we did over 200 homes and had for the last 12 years Um, so we hired one project manager eventually grew to four then had a vice president of construction that um, you know, would oversee those four project managers. So, um, I knew when I was driving to these properties and constantly getting frustrated and upset. And you know, I'm there at two o'clock in the afternoon. Nobody's there. Um, we're thinking we should be at sixty percent. I'm getting to the job site. We're at twenty percent. And um, these guys are requesting additional draws for payment for work that's either not done or you know is going to be done, quote unquote, um, by the time the the check is released. So I just I knew that was not a sustainable position for me to be in, um, but loved the business and filled that void. I said, listen, it needs to be done. I'm not the right guy to do it. Let's hire someone and put them in that position.
0: That's awesome. And then did you work with like an outside consultant or a framework or tech to, I mean, it's great to bring on someone, but then they still need to be held accountable. Correct. They still need a, you know, they need structure. Yes. Did you... Talk me through that. Did you, I mean, you guys use some tech here? Yes. Right? Uh, to kind of keep people on track? Yes. Uh, was tech more helpful? Was an outside consultant helpful? What kind of. So,
1: never, never used an out, outside consultant. In the beginning, didn't use tech. We'd have 15 minute huddles in the morning. And at this point, we're talking about, let's say, 30 active renovations. Um, in the beginning, each of those would have a file, you know, um, a full budget sheet. Um, all the contractor, you know, W-4s, W-9s, all the stuff that they needed. Um, All of the information would get put into this folder. So before we would start, we knew we had all our I's dotted and T's crossed. And then we would just manage off of that deadline. Like, hey, it's a six week job, one week in, are we tracking or are we at 15%? Um, And we would have those conversations in the beginning of the meeting and prioritize things based on what needed to be done sooner than later. Um, Once we got to, you know, 40, 50 projects and three or four project managers, that 15 minute huddle in the morning grew to like an hour and 15 minutes and it just, it was sucking up a lot of time that we could otherwise be doing more productive things. Um, We then um, started using um, a software called Basecamp, um, which allows you in the beginning of the job, um, you can upload all of the associated documents, um, a Gantt chart where you can map out what's happening at what time, when that deadline is. Um, You know, if you have a framer in there from Monday to Friday, and the drywaller comes in on Saturday morning, Um, each of these contractors have access to that particular job and the schedule inside of the application. Um, So it was a way for us to communicate with all of the subs on the job through one tool where if you move that date, let's say, because we're two days behind on framing, it would instantly update every subcontractor um, that was part of that job loaded into that tech, you know, that that program. You're now two days out. We're now two days out. Yeah. So rather than making six or seven, you know, phone calls to try and update somebody, um, it happened, you know, virtually um, with the click of a button. Plus, for me, I could, every time there was an update, it would send me an alert. So if I wanted to see pictures at the conclusion of the day or progress pictures, they wouldn't have to be sent to everybody individually. You could log into that application and track the progress in real
0: time. I mean, I'm almost amazed that you were able to do, I mean, you were doing 50 properties a year without using any kind of a tech Yeah, base camp. I mean that's almost astounding by itself. Yeah, and
1: then you know, one of the things that we noticed is you know all of our properties are always for sale. So we'd have properties that were under renovation and potential buyers would say, you know, what's the plan in the basement? Or you know, what type of flooring are you putting in here? And we would constantly reach out to the project manager and they would have to then, you know, find that documentation, send it to somebody. So it was it was, you know, consistently derailing them from doing what is most important, which is driving the schedule, driving the budget, and holding contractors accountable for quality. Um, and once we found that application, it was easy for them to load all those documents there, and then instead of having to go to the project manager person to log in, go to that job and say, oh, here's the detailed renovation list, it looks like we're putting in hardwood floors in the dining room. Um, so it cut back on a lot of unnecessary communication, uh, but it was one of those things we realized that we needed it because there was a pain point um, that was created, and we looked for a solution and fortunately found it.
0: That's awesome. Um... So talk to me a little bit about how you, I guess like how you buy, right? So you, I mean, you're, you're doing some end flipping, but a lot of what you're doing is now turnkey rentals. Mm-hmm. But I guess you're still doing a mix. Uh, talk me through how you, how you determine if a property that you buy, is a better fit as a turnkey rental or as a residential
1: home? So we, we do, we run it through a, basically an underwriting process at the beginning of the acquisition. Um, where we assess highest and best use. So when we bring a property in at 70,000, we know what the targeted renovations are we'll then measure what the rents are right and then the rents and, and the taxes and the um, debt service for that property would dictate how good of a rental it is and, and what cap rate it produces um, which then dictates what we could sell it to for you know to a potential investor and then we'll also compare that side by side um, what a retail, you know, fix and flip would look like if we buy it for X, you know, put, you know, um thirty thousand dollars worth of renovations in it and then sell it with normal commissions, carrying costs, sellers help, all that stuff. And then we compare the two and um you know there's a certain model that we only purchase for turnkey rentals in, you know, B plus neighborhoods. Um, where some of our inventory that we buy that, you know, potentially be a retail flip could be in a a transitional neighborhood. Um, Still plenty of sales in there to justify the comps. Um, No concerns about resale. Um, You know, stuff sells relatively quickly. Um, So we have an underwriting process when a deal comes in through our acquisitions department that it gets run through. um, And then we identify what the highest and best use of that property is, and we move in that direction.
0: And if I'm right, I think sometimes you even are still open to doing both. Mm -hmm. Is that right? I mean, I've seen some of your properties where you're You're actually listing it for sale as a normal residential. So one of the things
1: which for me was you know um, not really even a consideration but we renovate our rentals the same way we renovate our flips. Interesting. No Um, difference. Virtually no difference. If anything you know if a roof let's say has three to four years worth of life expectancy on a flip and it passes a home inspection we'll leave it. If we're renovating the property to sell to an investor Um, we have a five-year guarantee. So if it has less than five years worth of useful life, whether it's the roof, the windows, the plumbing, the electrical, um, the furnace, if it's less than five years of useful life, we replace it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the standards are virtually identical. Actually, our SOPs for the two are identical with the exception of the five-year guarantee that we sell um, and offer with our rentals. Um, Which,
0: which, by the way, that's I don't think that's standard in the industry. I mean, I think most people, I think the going concept is you know go more low end on a rental correct
1: and what i've realized is that two things um i do this i use the same approach with my own rentals is the quality of the renovation directly impacts the quality of the tenant right um no different than a flip would right And that's why i applied it without even thinking about it would be if you do a low-end renovation on a flip probably gonna get picked apart on a home inspection um, the person that, you know, you're, you're, you're actually hoping that the person won't mind, that you've overlooked certain things on the property that should have been done. Um, so I've realized as we've, you know, constantly made it a focus to increase the quality of our renovations for flips, we've been able to demand a higher price and we've got a higher quality buyer. Um, and I've seen a direct correlation with that as flips. Um, you know, we're doing new kitchens, new baths, new flooring, new roofs, new windows, new furnaces. Um, people appreciate that stuff. You know, um, the tenants look at that and say, hey, listen, I really shouldn't have to worry about maintenance. Um, This isn't going to be something where I have a landlord that, you know, I have leaking faucets and the heat doesn't work. Or, you know, the screen door fell off the back and it takes days or weeks for them to get back to me. Most people that have rented have, you know, probably had a less than favorable experience with the landlord. And it's realistically almost always attributed to maintenance something breaks and landlord doesn't want to fix it or yeah. just doesn't have the money to fix it. Right. Um, or they're living in, you know, less than favorable um, properties that, that, that you know, got clean, but 20-year-old, you know, blue, green, um, bright red carpet, and the kitchen's not all that new. Um, right, so you so- want that
0: experience for the renter to almost look like they just bought something. Yeah, they just can pack up and
1: leave in two years if they want. (laughs) Um, And then certainly, you know, from an ownership perspective, uh, the landlord or owner of the property at that point isn't um, getting nickeled and dime with maintenance calls. You know where they're anticipating a ten percent return, but by the time you factor in maintenance, they're down to a three percent return. Right. And then it's the unpredictable nature of it, right? Like um, if a furnace goes bad, um, it's a five to seven thousand dollar repair that the, the owner has to make that could chew up their entire year's worth of profits. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we just we we've we've taken the approach to to renovate our rentals. Um, the same way we would our flips and it, it's paid off. We've seen a higher rent. Um, we've seen higher values. Um, and then the folks that we're selling these to um, love the fact that it's, you know, it's turnkey. It's, it's yeah. you know, it's essentially maintenance-free. And um, they can sit back and collect rent checks without worrying about maintenance.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, I, I just have an interesting question for you. So as you think about, like, the market cycle, I think most folks, uh, you know, we often say we're not very good at predicting the future, but let's say, at some point in the next three, four years, we feel like there's probably a downturn coming, maybe. Sure. Uh, in your model, I feel like you guys are kinda a bit um, isolated, or at least much more secure than normal, because you're able to sell it as either a residential buy or a turnkey, and, the, and the, you know I think in general, the turnkey market is more secure because people are buying investments as opposed yes. to buying, uh, you know, if the, if the residential market—it's
1: spe- like when you're buying it to flip it, you're you're speculating on the value in the next 90 days.
0: Right. Whereas you're speculating the value for the next 15 years. Correct. It, um, cool. and the one thing we know
1: is history tells us over 15 years it's going to go up in value. <laughs>
0: um,
1: in addition to the appreciation, you also benefit from the the, the tax repercussions of owning um, a rental property. That you know, there's a huge upside there. You know, with your ability to be able to. Um, right off and the deductions that come along with owning a rental property, not to mention the cash flow, right? You're getting typically 11 to 20% return cash on cash and an 8 to 10% return on the capital investment overall. Um, so when the market, if and when it does have a correction or a downturn, this is the cool part about the, the turnkey model or just really the rental model would be when that happens, values will, will come down. So now your acquisition cost to acquire this property is lower, right? When there's less opportunity or less people are buying homes, like the population didn't just go away, there's just less of the population buying homes. They're waiting for the rates to come back down, uh, maybe credit, parameters tighten up a little bit like they have in the past, um, and it's harder for people to, to, to buy a home because of down payment requirements or rental requirements, then you have this huge influx of people that are now looking to rent. So it drives up the demand for rentals, which drives up the price of rentals. So now you're acquiring these properties at a lower price point and the rents are higher, the margins, and the spreads become even better.
0: Right. Um, so, so you look at the next three, four years, and you probably say,
1: I can't wait to, 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 to see, you know, no one wishes for a downturn in the market, but it's inevitable, right? History will repeat itself, and all the indicators would say in the next 24 to 36 months, there's going to be not a, a, a cor- I call it a correction. It's yeah. not going to be like what we experienced in the recession. Sure. Um, but it's a correction. It, it, and we've seen rates start to, to, to creep back up. Those are all the indicators right. that happen 24, 36 months before there's a correction.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I think for, for for listeners here, I mean, look, I think you're crazy if you're not thinking about your own business. And how can you, how does the next three or four years look for you? Because the next three four are probably not going to look like the last three four.
1: I wouldn't imagine. Almost all the right. opposite. Yeah.
0: Right. And so... Uh, I always tell people when we start, we started this business about six years ago and everyone, that the number one thing people wanted to, our advice for was how do I get loans? Mm-hmm. How do I get access to money? And now nobody asks me that mm-hmm. and everybody wants access to deals. Correct. And I can almost guarantee in four or five years. Everybody's gonna want loans. Because deals, deals are gonna be had, right? Yeah. And so these cyclical natures are interesting. And, uh, so the great
1: part about that is is you know,
0: um,
1: with, with the turnkey, properties um, is that it creates a leverage opportunity right um, when a bank looks at the, the the equity that you have in a particular deal as the the value is increased your principal balances you know come down um, I've always been able to get loans I would say easier than anticipated because I was able to leverage a substantial rental portfolio um, so as I look ahead and I think about that and I think about how to you know um, basically stage our business to to, to not just survive the downturn but thrive in it, Um, when those deals come along um, and we have a, you know, uh, which at that point will be over 150 unit rental portfolio uh, with a considerable amount of equity and it'll give us the opportunity to leverage that to get loans to capitalize on more deals. Um, So yeah, I mean, to to, to your point, everybody was looking for uh, loans, you know, three years ago. now. They're that's handing out, I just met with a bank today, and they're like, hey, if you know anybody that's looking, let them know we have $60 million to lend. <laughs> okay, I'll keep that in mind. Right? Like, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the challenge right now today is finding the deals. Everybody has money, nobody has deals.
0: Yeah, that's so. awesome. Um, okay, uh, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about was, so it's interesting, I, I was thinking about how, so your car buying experience, right? You saw the impact of tech and how it shrunk margins. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with what Zillow's up to mm-hmm. in kind of the flipping space. I mean, one of the things we focus on in this podcast is the impact of tech and how do you scale. Um, do you think you'll see compressed margins as Zillow's and other folks like that get into or try to get into the flipping space? Or do you think flipping is just too local that think they, they won't be able to do it?
1: That's, I think it'd be silly for me to assume that, I mean, let's face it, Zillow is a, a giant company with a, a ton of leverage and um, unlimited resources, and they basically control the real estate market. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's the primary search tool that people use. Um, a large percent of the population start their search on Zillow. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that they will... Um, Look to go into smaller markets. Um, they like to buy predominantly newer construction, very you know um, easy flips. They're, they're and they're operating off of a, they're anticipating to operate off a two or three percent profit margin. So they have to do it at such a high volume at those margins to be able to right. have be sustainable.
0: Yeah.
1: And in, a, in, in an area like you know York County, there's there's the Dolphin County, York County, Adams County. There's not enough inventory for them. And to just buy for it.
0: folks on the phone who may not. Or on the podcast, you know, this is uh, you know South Central PA. I, I, this is not the first market Zillow's targeting. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah, they're going to larger markets LA, like LA, Phoenix, Nashville, these Austin, Texas, right. like these huge markets. Um, with you know, they can buy say thirty homes in one neighborhood. So, um, and the consistency of that neighborhood because all the homes, let's say, were built inside of the last twenty years. The the model is so consistent. Like they only buy say. Three bed, two bath homes that are detached on right. more than a, you know a tenth right. of an acre um, with a two car garage. Right. That way, it's a it's a super predictable resale. Um, a lot of what we deal with is you know non conforming properties, larger scale renovations, um, you know stuff like that. But no, I mean I think um, you know I'm in some different networking groups and so forth that actually sell to places like Zillow and Open Door. Um, their marketing method, you know, is is a little antiquated. Um, They're doing big branding messages and less of direct-to-seller messaging where they're asking for or, you know, have a call to action. Um, It's just more of branding Zillow as a potential option for people to purchase their home. Haven't heard great stories and feedback about the service because it is so tech and automated. There is that human element of it that's missing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it'll certainly, I think they're filling a void in the market segment that right now for me, Um, does it mean we won't cross paths? I mean, it's, it's, I think it, you know, it's, it's inevitable that, you know, we'll come across each other. There's a long
0: timeline there.
1: And I just don't know that they ever want to be sitting at someone's kitchen table for two and a half hours negotiating a deal.
0: Right. Um, I think it's putting in 25 K into a custom house that sits at the end of a cul-de-sac in, you know, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Correct. (laughs) That would not be their model. Which is your bread and butter. Correct. Um, Okay. That's awesome. Um, I, I really like your approach there. I, it's something that we're really going to challenge our clients and folks on the podcast to do is it just, you know, I'm super interested in what they're doing and where that goes and then how do you insulate yourself? And I think you guys are insulated in, in, a, in a good way. Here.
1: Insulate and then there's, there's also the possibility that you can provide a service to them. I mean, let's face it, I wholesale 15 deals a month. Right. Uh, I, at the end of the day, I, I love the relationships that are built through that um but uh, the more i learn about their model the more likely i can be to be a a, a value service. a service to them <laughs> right. um and um you know they're they're if if they're buying at 1 and 2% margins and we're buying at 20% margins i can wholesale properties to them yeah. and realistically make a higher margin than i would um you know right. wholesale it to a local investor right. i mean nothing so,
0: property group.com, but uh yeah. zillow.com gets
1: a little bit more traffic on a daily basis <laughs> yeah
0: um, uh Cool. That is that's awesome. It's really good hearing your perspective. Um, all right, I want to jump to. Uh, so you guys buy. For folks on the podcast who may not know, you buy across. I guess I would say maybe. would you say? Like four to five, three or four cities.
1: Yeah, I mean, we would call them. Let's say six territories: Northern Baltimore. York County, Adams County, Dauphin County, Cumberland County, and Lancaster County. Okay. So throughout those six territories, there's you know particularly in York we got all these little boroughs and municipalities and stuff. But really six territories and six counties um, from Northern Baltimore all through Central Pennsylvania.
0: Um, I mean I know a lot of people who do flipping are pretty insistent on just kind of focusing on one territory. You've been able to do five or six, and I I know you just expanded into Maryland recently and are basically guns a blazing. Mm -hmm. Like seem to have a great process already set up uh talk to me through how you've been able to manage across those different territories so well
1: so a lot of it goes back to process right so we were doing 70 deals 100 deals 150 deals 200 deals um, as we grew through that you know i was the primary decision maker um, on what we bought how we renovated and how we sold it but as as we grew um, and hired and onboarded new people it was inevitable that i had to get that what I call tribal knowledge out of my head and onto paper in the form of process, so we could duplicate those results across um, a higher volume. And once we implemented that process, um, there would be just opportunities that would present themselves where, you know, we're in. Um, Actually, I forgot a, a county we're in, Franklin County, um, which we've now been in for about 90 days, so seven territories, but really that came about the same that Dolphin County did and, and, and Cumberland County is when we were doing business in York, we would end up doing a, a deal at, let's say the northern part of York County. We'd have a sign out, you know, we'd be you know, doing open houses, people would see the construction, and someone from the neighboring county would drive through or maybe their friend would say, yeah, you know, uh, there's this company renovating this property two doors down from me, the place looks awesome, they're selling it, blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, you get a lead from someone that's four miles north of, of York County in Cumberland yeah. County, and you go up there and you make the deal, it's a good deal, and all of a sudden, boom, you're in business in Cumberland County. and. Um, you know, one of the things we, we, so when we look at a growth model, it's, it's always uh, the inkblot method, which, you know, I've learned from, from Gary Keller and Keller Williams, is that because, like you had said previously, real estate is so localized, right? Um, if you go from the York market, even down to the Baltimore market, there's a huge gap in values. Um, and then you go block to block, um, township to township, borough to borough, and you can see a big shift in the school systems and the tax base um, and then the, ultimately the values, right? So it's easy to make a mistake because you bought a house at 123 Main Street and let's say the, the, the schools change at 236 Main Street, you pulled comps, you don't know the area and next thing you know, you're forty or $50,000 upside down in a deal. Right. That can happen pretty quickly. Right. Um, so once we had process in for everything from marketing to acquisitions, uh, to renovations, the dispositions, the transaction to close, um, it just became this machine that just needed to be fed more deals and as we started expanding and did you know 250 deals which we do on a consistent basis now each year is you you start to gain, gain traction and, and get leads from outside territories and it's like an ink blot if you can imagine taking a nice clean piece of white paper and you put a big blot of ink it starts out you know concentrated in that one spot and it slowly starts to bleed out into the um a bigger space where it's covered Um, And that's been easier for us. It's easier to control and manage projects that are under renovation when we're 30 minutes away. Um, Then once you move to an hour, hour and a half away, when you have better process, you have better communication, you have tech that supports um, your renovation projects, it's become, it's always still painful. Like growth is painful. Um, Particularly when you have to add people or add or develop new process. And particularly if you're doing those two at the same time, it's like, I mean, just getting your knees knocked in, it's so painful, right? Yeah. Um, but once you do it and it's done, it's more of a maintenance item and less of a recreating the wheel every 30 days. Right. Um, so for us, we, we just have, and, and what you've noticed in your dealings with us is we literally have a process for everything. Um, and it cuts back a lot out of unnecessary emails and phone calls. If someone has a question, we have a process for it. Um, and part of our process has a step in it that if there is not process for your particular issue, there's a process of how to go and get that answer. (laughs) Um, And for me, what it did is it allowed me as the owner um, to be less connected in the day-to-day um, which is part of what made me feel so valued as an owner and an operator before. But now what it's allowed me to do is, you know, um, look into new markets, develop big relationships. Like, um, you know, this relationship that we've developed with Slate House is, is what's going to give us the capacity to grow our turnkey business. To, I was just talking about doing 100 in each of our markets. That's 200 new deals a year. That's 200 new rentals for you to manage. That's a big relationship. Um, And without that strategic partnership, that would probably restrict our ability to grow. We would have quickly outgrown a different partnership and it would have stunted our growth, right? We might have lost some relationships because of that. So now what it's done is it's allowed me to become less active in the day-to-day operations. And really my my primary function when I get to work every day is to have two good ideas, right? Share them with somebody that'll tell me whether or not I'm crazy, Um, (laughs) teach somebody something and um, develop new uh, marketing strategies or processes, or and I you can't you can't do that when you're in the day to day, right? Like it's hard to see what's going on when you're in the middle of the dogfight. Yeah. When I'm stepping outside of that and I'm able to see it from a thirty thousand foot view, it's easier for me to see gaps and opportunities and and yeah. you know feel excited about doing those. Where when I was in the 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 day to day operations, I go. Ah. Sounds like a great idea, but how the heck am I going to pull that off? Yeah. Now I just know it's every new idea is one person and one process away from being successful.
0: Yeah. One thing I've noticed is a lot of times people in real estate don't separate sales and operations. Yes. Well enough. Yeah. And uh, it sounds like such a small thing. I mean, in most bigger businesses, sales net would never sit. In operations, you've never had the same people. Doing ever?
1: That. Well, thinking about the car dealership, right. like the salespeople would be the worst service advisor you could ever imagine, right? And if you took a service advisor, a they mechanic. would spend yeah, a mechanic <laughs> would take three hours explaining to you how the fuel injector works when all you want to know is how to fold down the third row seat, <laughs> right? So, but it's it's funny because I think so many people don't run their real estate business like a business. I, I agree for some that. reason they believe that it's 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 this different. You know, business that can be run um, in spite of everything we've ever learned about every other business, right? Like, think about the restaurant business. You have cook staff and you have wait staff, right? Operations and sales. They're they're separated everywhere you go. Um, when you go to buy flooring, you talk to a salesperson. That guy doesn't come install it. Um, so the one thing I've learned is is that, you know, what makes a good salesperson does not a good operations person make. It's actually quite the opposite. Their profiles, um, we use the DISC profile when we hire people, and it just tells you about some personality tendencies, um, about whether they're patient, um, if they love process, if they're a, a strong, um, you know, sales profile, and if they love to be around people. And when you hire operations and you hire sales, those those profiles look almost, you know, uh, the exact opposite. Um, so I think for, for us, and, you know, for, for the longest time, because I'm a salesperson, even when I was hiring for operations, I tended to hire salespeople I, because I liked thing. them. The and thing. operation persons would sit across from me, and go, man, that guy's boring. Yeah. They, he just doesn't work. talk a lot. Doesn't it's, seem excited. It doesn't seem excited. Well, he's not because he's, he's not involved in a process right now.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, or they didn't have a sense of urgency. Well, I don't want my accountant to have a sense of urgency. That's how you make mistakes. Yeah. I want a salesperson to have a sense of urgency right because they need to move that 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 client or that prospect further down the sales you know pipeline than what they are now um but when i have an accountant or someone that's in charge of quality sense of urgency is is the least of my concerns it's all about um their patience and the ability to see you know a project through to the end um so we 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 use that now for for everybody and we you know we have what we consider to be seven different departments some of those are operation based some of those are sales based um, but we know what the, the, the candidate should look like from a profile perspective. Um, and we're very intentional about how we split that, that you know, um, responsibility up. We have what's called an accountability chart, um, not a um, organizational chart because it's, you know, it's really myself. Um, we have a COO integrator here and then seven department heads, um, each of which are, I would say, um, equal in you know, their status or pecking order or you know, however you would look at that. Um, but there are seven department heads that run that department. So we have marketing, sales, acquisitions, um, HR, accounting, um, lead management, um, and renovations, all of which have their own department head. And each of those departments have very specific individual skill set. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that point you made where uh, you know the CEO of the company might actually not be the best person to interview someone for a certain job i right. mean um, yeah. i i know i personally hired people who i was like really jazzed about and i was like oh, this guy's gonna be great yeah he is gonna be awesome and then two months later i just get the word that like this isn't working it's like how is it possible yeah he, was I so good. That guy. yeah he said he was gonna light the world on fire yeah um and then actually our team came to me and asked me to stop for a certain <laughs> department said chad yeah. no more yes uh we, we we got this yeah and i was like
1: and that's kind of what we've ended up with. I, I um, seldomly am involved in the interview process for anything operational. It's, that would be my strong suit, but um, I, I talk to and participate in every interview for sales oriented positions. Yeah. Because uh, that's my skill set, that's where I belong. And um, I have the ability to hire a higher quality salesperson, right? Like one thing that I learned in the interview process is you know, this sounds terrible, but if you rank people on a scale of one to 10, as far as their production and skill. If you have a seven that's interviewing a nine, that nine's not gonna come work for that seven.
0: Right.
1: They're just not. Right. Um, you
0: wanna work for a lot better
1: than you. And a seven might be reluctant to hire a nine yeah. because Never they see, see them. it as a, th- a threat. Yeah. threat. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So you always wanna put your 10 in the interview process doesn't mean they have to review every application. So when we have sales and acquisitions applications, they're run through my COO. He scrubs them down to the three primary candidate candidates, um, and then him and I interview together. Um, so uh, again, hiring is, is is a tedious process. I'm sure you would agree as a business owner, it's something that each and every time we think about doing it, you cringe a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it's super important. I mean, it's, it's, let's face it, our, our success is directly correlated to the quality of the people that we have and then the process and, and the tools that we give them to do their job. So That's um, I feel a lot better about my ability to hire and I know where I belong and where I don't belong. Um, so if you're a sales oriented person, interview and participate in sales related interviews. Um, if you're not, then, you, you know, if, if you're not operational have someone else that have a 10 don't do it have a 10 and your operations handling the interviewing for your operations
0: yeah that's awesome um okay i want to jump to one last topic here so you know there's a lot of folks who are probably listening who are investors and are probably trying to i i actually i run through this a lot with investors they're uh you know they're relatively new Mm -hmm. and they're trying to figure out you know where do i go to find a property Um, obviously there's lots of things you could do. You could buy from a wholesaler. You could go off the MLS. You could do marketing yourself, uh, or you could work with like a turnkey operator. And I think, um, I think sometimes people are a little reluctant to work with a turnkey operator because I feel like maybe they're, I don't know, being had or whatever. I don't know if that's fair, um, but talk to me about why you... Why a, a turnkey property makes a really good fit? And maybe who the ideal buyer of those kinds of properties is? So,
1: virtually everybody I ever run into is interested in real estate, right? Um, for a number of different reasons. And let's face it, 90% of the people that get into this business fail, right? And I've found... because. You know, you know, we, we have investors that conquer us all the time. They want to buy a wholesale property. Um, they're interested in rentals. Um, they love the turnkey model. And it's our job um, to run them through kind of a, you know, a qualifying process. And a lot of it comes down to their threshold for risk. Um, there's nothing more risky than flipping a house. Let's, I mean, it's, it's other than, you know, running in a black uh, sweatsuit in the middle of the night on the interstate that's like one notch above flipping a house right um i mean it's almost uncertain death and flipping a house there's so many things that can go wrong um i can you know attest firsthand Um, you can underestimate the budget you can overestimate the resale value um you could have a a terrible experience with a contractor that does quality work, and then, you know, you're liable. Yeah, and then if they don't do great quality, even though you weren't the contractor, you're liable um, for any disclosure issues or quality issues three months, 12 months down the road. Um, So when when you kind of lay out what a flip looks like, right, like you got to pay cash um, or, you know, have funding um, from an institution that would, you know, fund that project. Um, You have to manage the renovation, right? So you have to be um, smart enough to know what a deal looks like. You have to have some type of construction knowledge, experience, um, or just you know uh, some type of relevant um, experience to be able to now hire somewhere between three and five subcontractors, develop a scope, a scope of the work. And just time. But I mean, uh, there's a lot of folks. So, so, so are... now you have to be, and again, this is where I think a lot of people get get lost in real estate. You have to be good at acquisitions, good at renovations, and then you got to figure out how to sell it. Um, and that's not for everybody, right? Now, there's risk takers out there and um, people that have you know, enough construction background or we see a lot of people say, oh, my, you know, my brother in law is a contractor. We're gonna partner up. He's gonna handle the renovation portion. I have the funding and then have a great relationship with a realtor that can get it sold for me. Um, that's awesome if you're able to do that. But what I've found is most people are a little bit more interested in the long-term benefits of owning a property. Um, you know, it's just like stocks. Like, there's certain people that take high risk with big upside. And then there's people that want to preserve, right, um, whatever wealth or savings that they already have. So, I've found that the typical turnkey buyer for us is someone that makes north of $100,000, um, has their money, um, I loosely use the term invested in the stock market, um, I'm not even sure if people still use CDs 41K, anymore and 401ks, IRA, right. but like if, if, if a good 10-year return on that is 2 to 3%, um, you might have a year where it's up 10% and then, you know, you take a 6 or 7% loss the next quarter or the next year. And at that pace, after 30 years of saving, it's it's not a substantial enough money to be able to retire. So, there's people that are looking for the opportunity to get into real estate without being active and get an 8 to 10% return on their investment um, and upwards of 11 to 15% on their cash. So if you look at that and you take that multiplied times the next 20 or 30 years, that's enough money to be able to retire, not to mention that at the fact you still own the real estate. So you've made the returns Right? Like when you invest in a CD you invest in the stock market, your cash is the investment. Right. So when you pull it out, the investment goes away. Where when you're looking at a piece of real estate, you're able to leverage that. So 15, 20 years from now, let's say the property's paid off. Now the cash flow you know, quadruples. Yep. Yeah, uh, or you can re-leverage that. And let's say you have a portfolio that's worth a million bucks that you now owe zero. You can pull $750,000 of that out. Tax-free. Tax-free. Um, so we found that our typical turnkey client is someone that is just super interested in real estate, wants to be in real estate, but works a full-time job. That's where the money's coming from and doesn't have the time, the energy, the experience or quite frankly just the tolerance level to deal with a lot of the stuff that pops up either through property management, which you know firsthand, yeah. or the construction part of it. Um, they want to buy it have it be completely turnkey and get what we call mailbox money. They get a check for, you know, a 15%, 10% return on their money each and every month. And then they do that five, 10, 15 times. And next thing you know, you're, you've almost doubled your income. And it's essentially hands-off. You have a property manager that's managing the, the, the asset for you and dealing with any tenant issues, placement issues, um, you know, cleanups, all of that stuff. Um, and then we're supplying the inventory. So you don't have to go out and find it. You don't have to renovate it. You don't have to rent it. You don't have to manage it. Um, so that's what the turnkey buyer looks like. It's it's a much different. It's like so a turnkey buyer is a, is like someone that should work in operations. The flip person is someone that should work in sales. They're yeah. they're the they're the same profile. Like a person that wants to flip a house is probably a salesperson. The person that wants a turnkey rental is much more operational.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I uh, well, it's interesting when I first entered this market uh, this business. I thought to myself, ah, turnkey rentals. Like, why wouldn't someone just go off the MLS? And I'll tell you, now I totally disagree. Like, now I can totally see the value. You're buying something that has been fixed up, um, so your first four or five years of cash flow is going to look much more predictable, mm-hmm. let's be honest. Then, I mean, you buy something off the MLS or off, off a wholesaler, and uh, not to knock those things, but there is much more unpredictable because someone's selling.
1: Correct.
0: And someone's selling is for a reason. potentially for a reason. They yeah. may not disclose that reason right. perfectly in the sale process. Uh, whereas, you know, you guys are kind of making those first four or five years much more predictable. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if that person who has a C-level job, uh, you know, working 55 hours a week, they just don't want more stress. Sure. Right? And so I think to be able to invest in real estate but not bring on another stress to their life, I think you guys have just created an awesome model for that. Yeah. So... Awesome. Well, hey, uh, if, so let's just wrap this up. If folks are interested in what you guys are doing, how can they reach you? What is uh, the- so you can go to
1: our website, it's uh, crpropertygroup.com. Uh, we have all of our inventory listed there, um, everything from our wholesale deals to our turnkey deals. Um, to our uh, fix and flip, so you can see plenty of examples of what we. I think you're telling me you've like. got
0: like eight things available to buy now?
1: Or? Uh, Northern Baltimore, we have eight. We have over 10 um, available turnkey rentals right now um, in central Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, so. I think almost all of those are already um, either tenant-occupied um, or we have deposits and they'll be moving in shortly. Awesome. Um, so you're buying an income-producing asset from day one, too. Again, if you look back and versus something you buy off the MLS, you draw the money, you have expense. Until that's renovated and, and rented, Two, three
0: months, easily.
1: That's if you're doing a great job. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, so CRPropertyGroup.com. Um, I can personally be reached at 717-818-3694. Um, I'm really good about responding to emails, text messages. Um, if anybody's, you know, looking to get some information, awesome. Um, I'm always happy to help.
0: It's great. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Honestly, on a personal level, thanks for the partnership. Sure. Uh, on the Slate House uh, side, we've been pumped to work with you guys, and uh, thanks for joining us. Just awesome, awesome. I, man, 50 deals year one, 200 deals, 200 properties now. Uh, just some awesome knowledge. And uh, I, I took a ton of notes here personally. So cool. this is great. Thanks a lot. And uh, yeah, Real Estate Hackers podcast. will be back again uh, next week. Thanks for joining. Thank you. All right. Bye. bye. So that's our episode of Real Estate Hackers. Thanks for joining us in your real estate investing journey. We come out with fresh new episodes weekly. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you would, let your fellow investors know about us. Also, if you've ever hacked or found a unique solution to an issue in the real estate space, hit me up. We may even share your real estate hack on a future episode. Check out our site at realestatehackers.com, on Instagram, at realestatehackers, or email me directly at chad at realestatehackers.com. Real Estate Hackers is an on-air brands production. Huge thanks and shout out to Eric and the team at On Air Brands. Be sure to check them out at onairbrands.com. This is Chad Gallagher, your host of Real Estate Hackers. Hope to see you at our next meetup or live event. And who knows, you may even be the next guest hacker on our show. See you soon.